Well, good morning, Aletheia Church. It's good to see you guys. Um, uh, I, I want to introduce myself to you first. If you're a first-time guest, welcome. It's good to see you guys. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are glad you are with us this morning. I would, however, encourage you not to come up and introduce yourself to me afterwards. Um, because have you got, if you guys have ever been in that like, place in life where you know something is coming, but it hasn't hit yet. Um, my entire house is down for the count with the flu right now, except for me. Um, and so I'm likely carrying the plague. Um, and so uh, I would encourage you to, you know, put on a hazmat suit if you're around me. Um, but right now I feel completely fine. So I felt like God really has something he wanted uh, me to share with you guys this morning and process through this morning. And so uh, hopefully God will bless this time as we uh, study his word together. Um, if you have a Bible or you have your scripture journal with you, uh, you can go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 11. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning uh, for the majority of our time. And I just kind of want to share with you guys, uh, we have as leaders at this church, as the elders and the pastors of this church pray for this church, and as we've been studying the book of Acts um, as a church, we kind of have two uh, chief goals or aims that uh, we want to see God do in, in, in our lives as we study this book together. And, and the first one is that we would grow more in love with God through studying his word. Uh, we believe that uh, God gave us his word, right, in the Bible. We love the Bible here at Aletheia Church. We make no uh, apologies about that. And so we love God's word. We believe that God truly speaks to us through that. Um, as a matter of fact, if this is one of your first times here and you have not gotten one yet, we actually have little scripture journals with, uh, for the book of Acts that on one side is the word of God and on another side is a blank page. If you want one of those, just raise your hand. We've got a few volunteers around here that would love to hand one out to you. Uh, feel free to take one so that you can take notes and be just writing down what God might have for you. Uh, but we love the word of God here. It's a value here, and we want you guys to have the word of God in your hands because we think God will use it to transform you and teach you and reveal his son to you. Uh, the second thing is, as we've been going through the book of Acts, is we want to see more people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Simple. simple. We, we want people to come from not knowing Jesus to following Jesus as their God and King, not because we want our numbers to grow at this church, but because we truly believe that God designed human beings to ultimately be satisfied in him. And we believe that no matter what this life offers, it ultimately offers cheap imitations of the real thing, which is Jesus. And so we want more and more people to know Jesus, to meet Jesus, to love Jesus. And, and that's what we've been kind of trying to instill in, in the DNA of you guys and, in, and even in my own heart, right? This idea of consistently just sharing the love of Jesus Christ with everyone that we come in contact with. And one of the things that we've been doing, and we, we did this the first two Sundays, and we've kind of gone away with talking about it consistently on Sunday mornings, but if you've been in gospel communities, you've heard this consistent theme over and over again, and you've heard us at, on, at times from the stage mention our one, right? Who is one person that we want to see God rescue, redeem, and save. And, and, and back in August, we spent a Sunday where we just asked God to lay one person on our heart. And we literally, I, I still have them laying here, hundreds of names of people that 
this church wants to see transformed by the grace and love and power of Jesus Christ. Right? And so this morning, um, we actually have a name to stick up here because we've seen somebody come to faith in the last couple weeks. Right? So I'm going to stick that up there because every time we see somebody come to faith, we're putting that name up there. Um, but guys, continue to pray for your one. And we're going to be talking about that more this morning. Right? But God is at work. Right? He's seeking the lost. Right? He's drawing people to himself and he's using us, right, the church, to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done in people's lives. So we've got that out of the way. I'm just kind of laying the groundwork for what we're going to be going through this morning. But will you bow your head and pray with me uh, before we dive into the text this morning? God, I thank you that you are a loving father. I thank you that you are a kind father that you're an affectionate father who would not abandon us. You would not abuse us. Father, you tell us in your word that you love us with all the love you have through your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you being eternally God, you're God's son, that you humbled yourself and you entered into our world and became a man that you became the God-man who walked among us, that you lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived. Jesus, that you went to the cross, and there on that cross, you took upon yourself the punishment for our rebellion against God. And Jesus, you died on the cross, and then three days later, you rose again from the dead, and that you're now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus, we want our time together today to be an act of worship towards you and for you. God, we want this time in the word this morning to be a time that's centered around exalting you and worshiping you. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we pray for those of us that are Christians here today that you would empower us that you would break down any walls or barriers we put between ourselves and those that do not know Jesus. And God, that you would open our eyes to see those who you want us to share the gospel with. Holy Spirit, I especially pray for anyone here today that doesn't yet know Jesus. Those who are religious who think that by working hard, they're going to earn a relationship with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict everyone here this morning and that you would reveal Jesus to them, that they might walk with you and know you. I pray that we would forever be changed this morning by the good news of what Jesus has done. And it's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. So, Acts chapter 11, uh, what Gabby um, read to us just a few minutes ago is actually a continuation of what Pastor Theo talked about last week when he was preaching for us. And last week we saw Theo share with us that we are empowered to be reconciled to God and to one another. Uh, and, and I thought what was really beautiful is if you've been studying Acts with us for any length of time, you've seen this consistent theme over and over again. That's that God calls his church 
uh, to be his witnesses all, all the way back in Acts 1.8, right, in Judea, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, right? And we see this consistent thread throughout the book of Acts of God empowering his church to do exactly what he asked them to do. And when you get to Acts chapter 10, I, what's so beautiful about that is you see the Holy Spirit continue to be the catalyst for all the ministry that we see in the early church, right? We see uh, the Holy Spirit uh, meeting Cornelius and already drawing him towards God long before the visions that we see in Acts chapter 10. Then we see the Holy Spirit uh, sending messengers uh, to speak to uh, Cornelius and to Peter in dreams, right? And we see that God is speaking some very specific things to them. And then ultimately we see the Holy Spirit, right, turn Cornelius and his family, right, from not following God to being followers of Jesus and being baptized that very day and the Holy Spirit falling upon them and empowering them for ministry the same way that he had the Jews in the early church. And so we saw, right, as Theo kind of unveiled this to us last week, that God is in the business of reconciling the lost to himself. And it didn't matter if you were culturally Jewish or not. It didn't matter who you were, that no matter how far you are from God, God can reconcile and draw you to him. But that in the midst of that, he also reconciles the human race to one another. That the beautiful part of the gospel is it's not, just the, it's not just powerful to reconcile us to God, but it's also restorative in that it reconciles uh, across racial barriers. It reconciles across social barriers. It reconciles across cultural barriers. It, it reconciles across cultural uh, and socioeconomic barriers. That the gospel is powerful enough, right? And the work of God in Christ is powerful enough to break down those barriers and restore Restore the shalom that God originally intended for the human race all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so as we look here at this story in Acts chapter 11, right, the question is, is, well, how do we respond to this great reconciliation that we see occurring between the Jews and the Gentiles here in the book of Acts? Because the problem is, right, if we understand uh, historically what is going on at this point in time in the book of Acts is there's going to be a major shift in the church, right? Up until this point, right, most of those who had responded to the gospel, who are following Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them, are, grew up and are culturally Jewish, Right, that Jesus went to the Jews first in his ministry, and subsequently, right, the apostles did the same in Jerusalem and then spreading out over Israel. And if you understand the context, right, we have this, this gap of understanding oftentimes in our view of God of Old Testament versus New Testament. And even during this time period, right, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and as the church is expanding and moving forward, right, the early church is struggling to kind of put together this idea of what Jesus has done and how he's reconciling all things to himself, right? Because they had grown up with these traditions and these ideas of what it meant to follow God fully, 
right? And what it meant to follow God was to follow the tradition and the law of the Old Testament. And God had very specifically chosen Abraham and the nation of Israel to follow God. And therefore, anyone that was not underneath that banner was viewed as an enemy of God, not someone that should be invited into God's family. And so there was a lot of cultural prejudice, there was a lot of racial prejudice, there was a lot of religious prejudice that existed amongst the Jews, right, towards the nations, as they're called in the Old Testament. So then when we get to Acts chapter 10, and we see God start saving Roman Gentiles, confusion is going to enter the picture, right? Jews are going to start asking, why, why is God saving them? Like, wait, like, they're God's enemies. Like, why, why is God saving his enemies? How could God save those people? Right? It's okay, you know, and, and we do this all the time, right? We sit here and we say, oh, I'm worthy of God's salvation, right? Because I'm not as bad as some of, some of those other people that I know. But then we see this radical story of someone getting transformed by the grace of God. And we're like, how could God save that person, right? I mean, I, like, even in the last, like, six months, right, Right? The biggest celebrities we've seen turn to Jesus, right? Justin Bieber and Kanye West. Some of you guys are like, what? Yeah, apparently they're walking with Jesus now. Right? And some of us are like, how in the world could Kanye, the guy that called himself Jesus, now be worshiping Jesus? Because God can reconcile anyone. That's why. Right? And as we're seeing this undertaking and this happen in the early church, the Jews are going to have issues with what happened in Acts chapter 10. So let's work through these 18 verses together, and I want us to think through and see a few things that are going on in these, in these verses, right, to hopefully encourage us to be more bold and to rejoice in what God is doing in those around us so that we, make, we might make much of Jesus together as a church, amen? So starting in verse 1, Right? Let's just read these first three verses here. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Right? So Acts chapter 10, right? Cornelius and his family are saved. They get baptized. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And as uh, as Peter, right, returns, right, to Judea, right, the circumcision party, as Luke calls them here, hears about this, and they're like, whoa, what is going on? Why are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with these Gentiles, right? We as Jews have spent our entire life not being around Gentiles because they are unclean. We are not allowed to be around them. And, and basically, right, there's this, this like mind-shattering moment for them of like, how in the world could you possibly say that you love God and follow God and yet associate yourself with the enemies of God? How could you possibly do that? And what we see, right, is that they're, they're looking at Peter and they're saying like, look, you're with these terrible sinners. How could you possibly love God and want to honor him? And so we get to verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order. So Peter's like, all right, calm down. Let me explain myself, right? There's, there's, there's a reason why all this happened. And he says this, 
I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? So Peter's like, hey, look, I was just in Joppa praying, minding my own business, and God downloaded something from the cloud and sent it to me. Right? And you know, Peter's watching the first YouTube video. Right? And, and he's seeing this YouTube video. And in this YouTube video, this vision that he's having... Right, the sheet rolls out, and, and as it rolls out, right, all these unclean animals that Jews were not allowed to eat and were not allowed to touch and come in contact with, he sees them being laid out before him, and then he hears the voice of God saying to him, Hey man, enjoy it. Go eat it. Like just just I'm I'm telling you, here's God, I'm laying this before you. I want you to participate and kill and eat. Now I love Peter. Right? Because if, if you've studied the scripture, specifically the New Testament at all, Peter gives me great hope that no matter how jacked up and messed up you are, God will be patient and gracious towards you. Right? you Peter, at this point in his life, is, is leading the charge for the early church to be planted after being called Satan by Jesus a couple years earlier. He still doesn't get it, though. Right? Look, so you get to verse 8. And God has just laid all this out before him. You, you think, like, how many of us are having visions all the time? Right? Not, not many hands probably are going to go up right now. Peter gets this vision and look at his response. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. So God has to like unveil the message, right? He hits the replay on the YouTube video three times for Peter before he finally gets it. Like, no, like really, God means this. <laughs> it, it is okay now, right? God is doing something new, right, with his people, right? Because Peter loves to disagree with God. He's like, ah, I've read the Old Testament, God. I, think you're, I don't think you understand your own word. I don't think you've got it, right? And God's like, no, I'm God. I tell you what we're doing, right? And so he explains this and he lays this out, right? And right after the vision's over, right, verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so he's like, look, I was having this vision, and then these men showed up and said that they had a vision, and that I was supposed to go to Caesarea, and they asked me to come and talk to this guy by the name of Cornelius, and then when I got there, Cornelius shared his vision about how God was basically like, hey, I know you've been trying to figure out who I am. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Peter to come and share the gospel with you. And, and, and by the way, I love this part. God tells Cornelius, and after he shows up and preaches to you, you're going to be saved, Love that. It's like, yeah, you don't have an option, right? 
Peter's going to show up. He's going to share the good news with you, and you're going to believe. Just be ready, right? So Peter shows up, and he does this, and right, look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Cornelius and all that are there are saved by the preaching of the good news. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Peter's like, yeah, I know you guys are confused at how I could possibly associate with them and like what's going on here. I'm just here to tell you, God told me what to do. I did it. And then like I kind of got out of the way and God just did something crazy. And some of you guys have shared your faith and witnessed to people before and you're like, yeah, that's exactly how it happens. I was talking to somebody. I was witnessing to them. I was sharing the gospel with them. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was saying. And next thing I know, I'm like, so how do I follow Jesus? And, and, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, sure, let me tell you, right? right? And then you're like, you know, it's like, ah, you're so excited, right? Because God has given this opportunity. But God was doing all this work in someone's heart long before we ever shared the gospel with them. That God was doing this work in Cornelius and his family long before Peter shows up, right? As, and as God works in them, right, I, I, I was amazed at this understanding of like, so Peter's had this vision, and the only reason that Peter was willing to go there in the first place and talk to Cornelius was because of the vision that God laid before him right beforehand. Because here's what Peter's kind of communicating to the circumcision party. Look, I didn't want to go talk to them, but God told me I had to. Like, they, they're, they're like huge sinners. They're, they, are, they, are the, they are God's enemies. I didn't want to go share with Cornelius. I didn't want to have anything to do with him or his family. But God showed up in that vision to me, and so I had to go. I had to go share the good news with them. Right? It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 42, right? That, that God's people should have known this kind of thing was going to happen. Right? Because the Old Testament and the New Testament are not in disagreement with one another. Right, God had been declaring right, long before Jesus ever showed up that the nations would come to know him. Right, if you read Isaiah chapter 42, right, the title of Isaiah chapter 42 is the Lord's uh, chosen servant. Right, it's talking about Jesus. And look at what he says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to who? The nations, not, not Israel, right? Who? The nations, right? Then go down to verse 6 with me. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Right? That God's chosen servant the very name that Jesus gives himself when he talks to his disciples in the New Testament, right? The suffering servant, the son of man. Jesus was going to be that servant, and he wasn't just going to be for Israel. He was going to be for the nations as well. And so the circumcision party should have had this understanding, right? Hey, this is how God operates, God is working across racial and cultural and hereditary divides right, to draw the human race back to God the Father. 
that God was always going to do this. Peter just gets to be part of the story. And that's what he's sharing with them. So the question is, and, and this is what I want us to understand as we're, we're working through Acts 11 this morning. Hey, this is the exact same story we looked at last week. Right? Luke tells it twice. He tells the story of it actually happening, happening, and then he tells the story of Peter having to share with the circumcision party why this is going down. And Luke is not retelling the story from a historical perspective because he's afraid, oh my gosh, like, if I don't tell the story twice, no one's going to remember it. No, he's telling this because he wants us to understand how God is transforming the minds of Jewish believers to come into line with what God is going to be doing in the church. That the church in Jerusalem and throughout Israel needed to have a, a change of mind and direction in their heart on what they believed God was going to do to save his people. Because most converts we've seen up until this point were Jewish, but not now. We've got full-blown Gentiles, right? And not only are they responding to the gospel, but they have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot deny what God is doing before them. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of the circumcision party for just a second. Right? Like, what they want to do, right? Because, like, they get a bad rap sometimes throughout the scripture, right? Like, you, you read about the Pharisees or you read about the circumcision party in the, in the, in the book of Acts, and you're like, man, these guys, like, they do, they do not get it. And they don't. But, but there's a reason why they struggle, right? Because they've spent their entire lives thinking that God was to be followed a very specific and religious way, and it's crumbling their worldview, their worldview is being shattered right before them. And they've been taught growing up, hey, these people are evil. And now you're telling me that the same Holy Spirit that resides in me resides in them? Guys, this would be like for us as Americans, right, seeing terrorist groups that have looked at the United States and said death to America, which means for you as an American, if you are an American citizen, they want you to die. And then seeing the grace of God in Jesus Christ radically transform them. And they're like, hey, can I come to your church? You're like, uh, I think there's one down the street that you could visit. Because weren't you the guy last week saying death to America? Right? This is the same kind of thing that they're having to process through and think through now that generations of these people being their enemies right, and being what God detested and hated are now invited into God's family. And Luke kind of shares three ideas with us I think we see in this passage. There's kind of three key things that I want you to draw out of Luke retelling and sharing this portion of the story. Right? First is this idea of just how does someone come to know God to begin with? Like, what is God doing to save the lost? Whether they're Jewish or they're part of the nations, what is God doing to draw people to himself? The second part is this, right? These Jews were going to just, by definition, struggle with the relationship of the Old Testament to what God was doing now. And so for us as Christians in 2020, what do we do with the Old Testament? How do we look at it? How do we interpret it? How do we move forward? I think Luke gives us a little bit of information on how to look at that and process through that. And then ultimately, right, we see this, and this is verse 18. 
When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And the question that Luke answers for us in, in telling us this story is what should be the response of God's people when God's grace is given to those who are far from God? What, are, what does God ask of us as his, as his people, right? as his church, as his bride? What does God want his church to do when those who are far from Jesus become radically saved and transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ? And so let's process through some of this. How does someone come to know God? And some of you guys will be like, what is, Kevin, why does this question matter? Like, like what are you talking about? Uh, what, why, why are you bringing this up? I want you to think about this for a second. Many people in Jewish culture and society believed that uh, they were God's chosen people and that they were saved and they were known by God entirely because of uh, their cultural and hereditary identity. That they were good, they were good to go with God because they had been born under the right parents, right? To, to put it another way, right, they had hit the genetic lottery, right? Oh, now nah, I'm good, man. Tribe of Benjamin. Right? Oh, nope, like I'm good. Le- Tribe of Levi, great, 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 great grandfather, Levi. Good, good to go, right? Without, without doing anything else. Right, without trying to follow God, without trying to uh, do what God had prescribed or asked of them, just because they had simply been born into it, right, they were good to go. Right? I'm born Jewish. We are God's chosen people. God chose us. Uh, it, we're, we're doing good. And here, here's what I want to kind of lay out before you guys and something you need to think about, because here's something that I found fascinating, right? especially since I moved to the South about nine years ago. Right? This idea of being culturally uh, in God's family because of where you were born or who you are doesn't just exist amongst Jewish people. It exists amongst Christians all over the U.S., right? Like, Like the number of times I've gone out on UF's campus or I've knocked on doors in this city and I'm talking with somebody and I'm, I'm inviting them to church and, and, and I'll, I'll ask, I always ask this question like, so, so anything spiritual going on in your life? And that, and that is a great question to ask because you'll get some, some wild answers. But I always love, right, the, those that have had some sort of connection to Christianity in their past, right? I'll, I'll get answers like this. Well, you know, I'm spiritual. I guess I'm a Christian because my grandmother or my dad is. Oh, so like, so it's in your blood. Right? Like Jesus just transferred it through, right, genetically through your family line. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's a, it's culturally like in in the United States for many many people being a follower of Jesus, right, has not become right. Uh, what we would see it defined as in scripture, but it's become a cultural marker of where you grew up and what cultural identity you grew up in, right? And what, what we see, right, in that is then there's gonna be then this hesitation to understand how God actually works and saves somebody. Because as we've seen in Acts, right, almost everyone responding to the gospel up to this point grew up Jewish, yet what had to happen to them? They had to be confronted with their own sin and then had the grace of God and Jesus Christ laid before them and respond to it. And the same thing happens to those who are far from God, who were from the nations and Gentiles. And and here's the deal. Jesus addresses this issue with a religious leader in John chapter 3. 
If you want to turn over there real quickly with me, if not, we'll have it up on the screen for you, right? But I want to share the story of Jesus talking with Nicodemus, right? It says, now there was a a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So if anyone's going to get and understand like, hey, what does it mean to follow God as a Jew, right, in AD 30, right? Nicodemus should be the guy that gets it and understands it. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Completely legitimate question, by the way. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right, so Jesus, right, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him this question. He's like, Jesus, we we, we just know you're from God because you're you're a good teacher, right? And I love Jesus. He just answers his question with a completely different question. He's like, you need to be born again. It's like, what? (laughs) We're We're not talking about that, Jesus. Jesus is. He's like, you don't get it, right? So let me just cut to the chase with you, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, huh? Like how? And Jesus says, you need to be born again by water and the spirit. Water is this idea of cleansing, right? Needing repentance and cleansing of sin and forgiveness of sins and the spirit regenerating, making them alive, right? Right? And Nicodemus asks this question, "How how can this be? Like, how, how does this happen, right? And here's the question behind the question for, for Nicodemus. What do you mean I need to be born again? I'm Jewish. I'm good. What do you, what do you mean I'm not going to inherit eternal life? I'm part of the Pharisees. I'm a religious leader. I'm, I'm good to go. What do, you, what do you mean I need to be born again? And look at what Jesus says. Right? As Nicodemus responds and says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He's talking about himself. And as Jesus lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is like, look, you need to understand this, Nicodemus. What I am teaching you right now is not a Jewish teaching. It's not something you've received from your rabbi. It's not something that's in the Talmud. What I am teaching you right now is straight from God. And it's a promise that unless you are born again, right, you will not see God. And the way that you're born again is that the same way that the serpent was lifted up by Moses, right? That I will be lifted up and raised to life after suffering on the cross and belief in me is the only way. 
See, Luke is addressing this same issue in Acts 11. Right, as the circumcision party is coming to Peter and they're like, what, what is going on? Right, Peter's having to answer the same question for them that Jesus is trying to answer here for Nicodemus. No one comes to know God apart from Jesus Christ. It does not matter where you were born. It does not matter if you grew up in the church. It does not matter if you grew up in the South. It doesn't matter if you listen to the Joy FM. God only cares if you are born again in Christ. And this is why, right, that when we, we look right now on the, on the landscape of the world and we say, the church is dying in the U.S., it's actually not. The cultural church is dying in the U.S., but those that are actually professing followers of Jesus who have some key indicators that you can ask apart of bearing fruit, the, the, the church is actually steadily growing. The numbers and research are showing that it's up in the last 20 years from about 13% of the population to about 17% of the population. But here's another beautiful thing. It's not just growing in the U.S., it's growing worldwide. You know the church where the church is growing fastest right now in the entire world? Iran. The church is exploding in Iran right now. Right? As God draws people to himself from the nations, revealing his son to them and what he has done. Because, guys, here's the thing. Salvation is not hereditary. Will you throw that slide up there for me? Right? Salvation is not hereditary. You see in Acts 11.1, 1, right? it says that the Gentiles received the word. Right? We see in Acts 11.15 right, that the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. We see in verse 17 that the Gentiles believe just uh, like the Jews did. That they believed in Jesus just like the Jews. And then we see in verse 18 that God granted repentance to them. Guys, this is amazing news. That the God of the Bible, right, is seeking and saving the lost. And there are no parameters for which you have to have been born. Like, how many of you in here are of Jewish descent? Not many. I see like two or three hands going up in the room, right? Most of you guys are like me, right? Right? If you're like me, I can trace the line of my family to Northern Europe where we were worshiping a guy with a really big hammer. And then Stan Lee made a comic about him years later, right? That, that, or Bark. I think my family worshiped Bark at one point in time, right? They would just get around a tree like, yeah, we're going to worship this tree, Right? That's my ancestry, right? While, while the, the descendants of the God of the Bible, right, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, right, it was they worshiped the true God, right? My ancestors, who knows? Right, whatever works at the time. And yet God in his mercy sought to seek and save Cornelius and his family, and then some 2,000 years later, God revealed himself to me. That he laid bare the condition of my heart and my sin before me and my rebellion towards my creator and said, Christ died for you. God is impartial. That's what we see in verse 12. 
And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Like, hey, go, go share with them. I don't care if they're not Jewish. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be American. You don't have to have grown up in the church. You don't have to have a sensitivity towards God. And here's the deal. Church, neither does your one. There's someone that you've been praying for that God would save, redeem, and rescue. It does not matter where they're at right now. God can save anyone, and we don't have to meet some sort of rigorous criteria because God is doing the saving. And let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you may be saying, look, Kevin, you, okay, I hear you, right? Like, the Gentiles were terrible and God saved them, but I don't, I don't think you get right, what I've done. I don't think you know what I've seen. I don't think you know what I've been through. You, you don't know how hard my life has been. You don't know how hard I've made life on other people. Here's what I would tell you. God does not care. God does not care. The good news of Jesus is that God accepts you as you are now, but he will change you. He accepts you as you are, but he, does it, but he loves you enough to not leave you that way. Here's one of the things I think we need to understand. You guys might remember three or four months ago when I was talking about this idea of counterfeit gospels and how the world is always throwing counterfeit good news at us all the time. Here's the biggest lie we are being told right now in our culture. And it's the, it's the good news of what tolerance is. Right? Hey, like the ultimate right, form of love and, and acceptance and, and beauty is tolerance. If we all just show tolerance and accept one another for whatever we are, then, then it's going to be beautiful. And here's what I would say to you. The gospel tells us that God accepts us where we are at. Right? He tolerates us. But he doesn't tolerate us forever. He transforms us into his image and his likeness. Right? The counterfeit says just accept them where they're at. The gospel says accept them where they're at and then see God transform them into the image of Jesus Christ because that's what God does. And as we see here, God granting repentance, granting life, even to those who are far off, they believe in Jesus, they repent of sin, and life is given. <laughs> that's good news, amen? Right? That God can save anyone. Right, And so as these these Jewish believers are sitting there confused about what the heck God is doing, right? As Peter shares this story, he's saying, he's saying to them, hey, God, God's doing something even more beautiful than he did through our ancestors. When God delivered our people from, from Egypt, he's doing something even more amazing right now. Let's let God do his work, right? Let's partner with him. But this is going to inevitably bring up a question, and we're going to see this later in the book of Acts. Well, wait a minute. If God is now saving based upon who he will save, not based upon right, who your mom and dad were, where you grew up, who your rabbi was, right? if God is now saving based upon the grace of Jesus Christ, then what do we do with the Old Testament? Right? G Gentiles in particular, we're going to be like, now what? Right? Cornelius and his family, they have the Holy Spirit up upon them. They come into the family, right? And, and Jews are like, whoa, what's going on? And the Gentiles are like, what do we do? Right? And they're, they're, they're excited, right? Everyone, everyone's standing there, right? And the Jews are like, well, you need to follow the law. And the Gentiles are like, do I have to? 
because I've never done that before, right? And then God saved me. What's, what's going on here? Right? If you know anything about the Old Testament law that Jews were required to follow, there's some 613 laws in the Old Testament. Things like you can't eat pork. That sucks, by the way. I love bacon. Right? If you're a vegetarian in here this morning, like, anybody seen, by the way, like that, that meme flying around the internet right now? Where it's like, oh, all these fast food companies are trying to tell us that they have these vegetarian burgers that taste just like meat. Cows have been doing that for years. <laughs> right? Like, guys, I love bacon. If you don't like bacon, that's for you. But I am very glad that I am not under these restrictions right now. Right? No pork, right? Males, male men had to be circumcised on the eighth day, right? Jews were required to, to keep the Sabbath holy, meaning they were to do no work on Saturdays. And different sects of Judaism cared about this to various degrees, but they all agreed like, hey, we need to follow the law. And so Gentiles come along and, and Cornelius' family gets saved and they're like, wait, now what? Right? And some of you are probably like, why are we talking about this? Why does this matter? Here's why this matters in 2020 and why we, we need to understand the relation of the Old Testament to the New Testament for us as Christians in 2020. Because here's what's inevitably going to happen, and I've seen this multiple times when I've been out on uh, UF's campus talking to people about God. They'll inevitably ask me this question. We're like, hey, like, do you follow the Old Testament law then? I'm like, well, you know, like, you know, like, that's a complicated question. How long do you have? <laughs> Right, like, uh, that, like that was three weeks of my Old Testament survey class in seminary. <laughs> do you do you want to spend nine hours with me over the next couple weeks? Because I, I would love to talk through it with you, right? But but what? Here's what they're getting at when they ask me, "Hey, do you follow the Old Testament law?" Because um, if you aren't, then aren't you not really following God? And if, you, and if you aren't really following God, then why would you tell me that I need to follow Jesus? Because you're not taking seriously all of God's words, so why should I take any of it seriously? Right? Because once you bring in a, a, a little bit of uh, leaven, right? once you discredit a little bit of the Bible, you open up the door to discredit all of it. Right? So if we as Christians look at this and, and the Gentiles come in and say, like, how do I relate to the Old Testament? Well, we just completely throw it out. It doesn't matter anymore. Then inevitably what's happening to people is like, well, I can just throw all this out. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want, live however I want. God's who I want him to be. And so we have to have a proper understanding of how to approach this the same way that the Gentile converts did and the same way that the Jewish believers were going to need to understand what God was doing at this time as well. So turn over to Matthew chapter 5 with me, right? Because we need to see what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying in Matthew chapter 5 to have a proper understanding of what's happening. All right, so you get to verse 17. And look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So here's what Jesus is saying to the crowd that's gathered around him. He's like, look, I, I need you guys to understand, right, that we aren't throwing the law out. I'm fulfilling it for you. That the law doesn't just pass away and get killed off, that I'm going to actually perform and follow it and do it for you. Those 613 laws that I mentioned earlier, Jesus kept them all for us. So how do we respond to the Old Testament then? And Paul talks about this some in the book of Galatians, and he talks about it some in the book of Romans. But here's what I'm going to share to you because I've been through seminary, and so I think I can try to sum it up for you a little bit faster than us reading those entire books together. We also preach through both of them. You can go back in our archives somewhere and find them. Right? There was a, a, a church father by the name of Tertullian, right? and he wrote uh, a, a lot of essays and papers Right in the early church, but one that he wrote is called uh, An Answer to the Jews. And he was trying to answer this question of how the gospel relates to the Old Testament law. Right? And, and I'm actually summarizing a lot of what he talks about in that essay, right? and then also throwing some things in from some guys like Martin Luther and Calvin and some other people. But this, here's kind of how the church over the years has at least tried to explain this simplistically so we can understand it. Right? The Old Testament can, law can kind of be split up into three categories. Will you throw that up on, on the board for me? Right? You have the ceremonial law, you have the civil law, and you have the moral law. These are kind of three separate ways to view this. And the ceremonial law would be rules and distinctions like uh, what to do in the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, what are we supposed to do as far as sacrifices? Um, what are our dietary restrictions? Uh, what are we supposed to do during the holidays and the Passover? Th those types of things would be what we would consider ceremonial laws for God's people. Then we look at another section and we say civil law. And this is like government rules, uh, how to do business transactions, whatever else. This was laid out uh, in Leviticus uh, under the Mosaic law of how God's people were to interact with one another as a nation because they had been underneath Pharaoh for hundreds of years. And at this point, how are they supposed to interact with another? Because they don't have a code of rules or laws to follow. Then this last one is we have the, the moral law. And what would fall underneath the moral law would be things like, hey, don't steal, don't murder, uh, don't lie. And so the question then becomes for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, these Gentile followers under, uh, that cor like Cornelius, they're just starting to follow God. How do they respond to the law? Do they need to follow all 613 the way that the Jews would try to? What do we do, right? And, and what we need to understand especially if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, right, is that the ceremonial, the civil law, and the moral law, all three of them are completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That the only human being that has ever or will ever perfectly follow the law of God is Jesus. Amen? Right, that only Jesus was able to do, right, the dietary restrictions, the Sabbath, Right? Keeping that holy, observing the Passover properly, uh, observing the, the civil law properly, observing the moral law properly. And if you understand the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus always loves to share how the, the idea behind the moral law is way more complicated than they thought the Ten Commandments were. Right? That Jesus is like, and then Jesus is like, I'm gonna fully fulfill that because I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I'm gonna perform where God can, where the rest of you cannot. 
I'm going to fulfill that for you. Right? And so when we look then at the ceremonial and the civil law, right, here's where we can kind of understand how we respond to those two. Right? It's often a matter of conscience. Right? Is God leading you to follow those things or not? Paul talks about this in, in Romans. Right? If you feel led by the Holy Spirit to follow the dietary restrictions, then you need to listen to what God is leading you to do by the Holy Spirit and follow, but you are not supposed to compel someone else to do the same because as God shares here in Acts chapter 11, we're freed from that in Christ. As we see in he Hebrews, right? we don't need to go to the temple because Jesus is the better temple. We don't have to observe the Passover because Jesus is our ultimate Passover lamb. We don't need to offer atoning sacrifices on the Day of Atonement every year because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice given once and for all. As far as the civil law goes, we can try to follow that, but we're not compelled to hold to it because we're not under a Jewish theocracy the way that Israel was under Moses. But the moral law, and you see this throughout the New Testament, is fulfilled in Jesus, but still binding to us. So the way that the ceremony and the civil laws are no longer binding, the, the moral law still is. Here, here, let me give you an example, right? If you have ever stolen before, right, God says to you that if you are in Christ, you have been fully forgiven and redeemed if you've repented of your sin and turned to Jesus and trusted in him. So if I say, hey, like, I robbed a bank, but Jesus forgives me, yes and amen. But in Christ, I can't go and say, hey, but because I'm in Christ, I'm going to steal your iPhone. No, there are very clear markers in the New Testament where God shares with us this type of thing is still binding. Let me give you an illustration, right? If you've ever been a student, right, at any point in time, or if you're at the University of Florida right now, right, you are seeking to get a degree, right? And if you're seeking to get that degree, there are certain rules and parameters that you must follow to be able to meet the, the requirements of that degree. One of those things is probably going to class, Right? So like if you are an engineering major here at the University of Florida, you need to go to class, show up to class, take your tests, whatever you, you need to do to be able to meet the requirements for graduation. But once you graduate, those requirements are fulfilled and already paid for. When you go take a job out in the workforce, are you going to show up to class at, at, at your you know, engineering building at 9 a.m.? No. Right? Those things are put off, right? They're fulfilled. You don't need to do them anymore. But, right, there will be certain things from those classes that you learned that are still going to be binding. Hopefully you learned, like if you're a civil engineer and what, what is necessary to make sure bridges stay up and don't fall down, you take that information with you because I'm a person that drives across bridges and I want you to do it properly. Right? You're going to take that information with you. The same way, it works the same way in the Old Testament. There are things that have been fulfilled, but there are things that we're going to have to take with us into our walk with Jesus. And those happen to be the moral law. Now, I know some of you guys who are super, super theological in here, and you're like, not everyone believes this. Right? Not everyone breaks the law down this way. I understand that. Right? This is one way that the church over the years has tried to explain this. The subject is complicated, Right, but this is where a lot of the church has landed over the years of how the church relates to the Old Testament. And here's why this matters. Right? 
when we inevitably have people bring up to us like, hey, why don't you follow the Old Testament prescriptions on dietary restrictions? You will then be able to say to somebody, because Jesus fulfilled it for me, and I'm not required to follow it anymore as a follower of Jesus. But there are Christians that by conscience are convinced that they need to, and they do so. There are other Christians, like myself, who will eat as much bacon as I can possibly put on my cheeseburger. And we are both free in Christ to do so because of what he has done. And this is exactly what Peter and the Jews are being taught on how to approach right, their new brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, here's why this is good news. Because if you're rebellious, right, you're like the Gentiles, and you look at the law, and you're like, I hate the law, I don't want to follow the law. We see here that God extends to you the offer to repent and believe and follow Jesus. You're like, I don't like the law, I don't want to follow the law, I don't want to have anything to do with the law. Jesus performed the law for you and gives you his standing before the Father. Some of you are like, I'm not rebellious. I'm a one on the Enneagram. I love rules. Let me follow all of them. I'll even create my own rules. I'm just like my Jewish uh, forefathers before me. Right? Let me read the Talmud. I love it. More rules that I can bind up everyone else with. You can perform and try to obey, but only Jesus can actually fulfill the law. And you cannot get to the Father on your own performance. By repentance and faith in Christ, God credits to you Christ's righteousness. He puts Christ's standing in your place so that whether you're rebellious or religious, you need the gospel. You need Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Gentile in rebellion or a Jewish Pharisee stuck in the sin of religion. The gospel is for both. And so here's how I want to bring this in for a landing. Right, we see that, that God saves not based on merit, but on the work of Jesus. That's not hereditary. It's not based on cultural cues or your connection to church or Jewish life. We see that the Old Testament matters in so much as that Christ fulfilled it and we follow him and then we're bound by conscience to what we may want to follow from the ceremonial and the civil law, but that we are bound by what Christ even said to us on the Sermon on the Mount to the moral law. But lastly, we still have to deal with this internal struggle that, that the circumcision party was dealing with. How do I approach these new brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit residing in them and yet they're my enemies? They've been my enemies for as long as I've been alive. They've been the enemies of my people for the last 2,000 years. How do I respond to God's grace on those who are far from God? Guys, everyone in here has an enemy. You do. Whether you realize it or not, I know that we're like taught by, by culture around us is like we're just supposed to love everyone, but everyone's got an enemy in here on some level. Trust me, if you, if you, don't, if you don't know who that enemy is, you just haven't thought long enough about it. would encourage you to think about who you gossip about. They might be your enemy. But as you think through this, 
what should our response to be? What should our response be to God's grace on those who are far from God? I want to read verse 18 again to you from Acts 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It says they fell silent, they glorified God, they rejoiced, they worshiped, and they continued to witness. As you're left with a few choices when you see God redeeming people around you, you can covet and be angry that God saved them. A lot of Jews did that. You can force them to try to conform to your image and your definition of what it means to be a follower of God. Or you can do what the circumcision party does here in verse 18, and that's rejoice. Rejoice and worship God for what he has done. Luke calls us in sharing this story to get excited for God's work of salvation in others. They don't have to agree to every little area of theology as you. I know my theology has changed literally dozens of times in the last 15 years, and it's likely gonna change again. You know what hasn't changed? Who my Savior is. There, there are some things that, that we need to know and believe as followers of Jesus. I get that. We all, but we don't all need to be five-point Calvinists or five-point Arminians to get into the kingdom of heaven. We don't all have to believe the same thing eschatologically to get into heaven. Some of you guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's probably good. <laughs> right? That God makes no distinction but that we are called to be excited for God's work in the lives of others. So here's what I would like us to do this morning in response to all this. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up. And here's, here's how I want us to respond, right? Because it's been a few months since we, we've thought through this, right? In the same way that God draws Cornelius and his entire family to him, God wants to do the same thing in the lives of those around us. In the same way that God redeemed and rescued you, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, he wants to do that in the lives of your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving coworkers, your unbelieving family. All, there is no one too far from God's reach. That God can save and redeem and rescue anyone. And so here's what, I, here's what I want us to do, right? We're gonna turn the lights down. Go ahead and turn those down, right? If you weren't here a few months ago, right, when we first started the One campaign, uh, on, the seat, on the seat back uh, of the seat in front of you, right, there's a little note card, right? Will you do something for me? I'm gonna pull this over here, right? Will you just write down the name of one person that you wanna see God save and will you lay it at the foot of the cross, Right? And, and, and yes, I get it, this is symbolic and whatever else is, but we are asking God to save them, not yourself. You're asking God to save them. Will you write down their name? And when you come up here and take communion, will you take communion first having prayed and asking God to forgive you of any sins that you may be, may be uh, struggling to repent of, asking God to forgive you, and then come up and take communion uh, joyfully because in Christ you are forgiven already for those sins. And then will you come over here when you drop a name at the foot of the cross asking God to save that person and that they might experience that same forgiveness and joy that you get to experience in taking communion? And if you need prayer, 
Right? If you've been trying to witness to your one over the last couple months and it's just been hard, or maybe you've been neglecting that, we're going to have people up here and in the back that would love to pray for, for you and love to pray for that person that God has laid on your heart. Will you come up here and pray with somebody and ask God to transform them? And if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, here is God's invitation to you. God loves you so much that he sent his only son to put on human flesh and then die in your place for your rebellion and sin. And that what Jesus then did was raise from the dead three days later to prove that he was God, but to also prove that God had finally once and for all defeated sin and death and that it no longer needs to have a stranglehold on your life because God is offering freedom to you. And will you come up here and tell somebody, hey, hey what do I need to do to make Jesus my Lord and my Savior? We would love to pray for you and with you about that.